back to Notes from Nash. Today's guest is Reverend Brian Fessler. Reverend Brian Fessler is a pastor at the Church of Scientology here in Nashville, Tennessee. He's also a professional banjo player. In this conversation, we discuss the doctrine of Scientology, how it has helped Fessler, and where the organization needs improvement. Thank you all for joining in, and please enjoy my conversation. What is Scientology? Well, let's start with the, let's just start with the definition of the word. Um, you know, ology, everybody in college knows ology means the study of, you know, bio, biology is the study of life, bio means life. And Scientology, the word, the first part comes from the word skios, which is a Latin word that meant wisdom or knowledge. So it's the study of wisdom, study of knowledge. It's a um, modern religion born in the 1950s and uh, people study it to learn about themselves and learn about life and learn about spirituality and that kind of thing. Well, uh, maybe walk me through the history of it, who the founder was and sort of the journey after the founder of Scientology, what, sure. what became of it after him. Sure. So everything that we study is based on the works of L. Ron Hubbard. And he is, um, he's an American. He was born in Nebraska in the early 1900s. Um, he just got very interested in life and very interested in mankind and people's potential. He was um, he traveled around a lot. His father was in the military. He got to see a lot of different places, and so he was very interested in people and what makes people tick and how how um, some people seem to be getting along better than others. You know, we're all born theoretically with similar potentials, but some people get along well and some people don't survive as well. He traveled to the east. He traveled. He lived in the U.S., of course, but he traveled to the East, and he saw a lot of spiritual knowledge and wisdom. And here in the U.S., it was kind of the Industrial Revolution, so he saw a lot of me mechanical and industrial scientific stuff and sort of merged the two together and studied the spirit and studied the mind from an engineer's point of view. So that resulted in um, the book Dianetics, right. and that was the first major work that came out in 1950. And... It studied the mind. It was a complete package itself. I'll explain how the mind works and what the mind's potential is and how you can improve the potential and how you can overcome barriers and things that are in the mind. As he kept on uh, researching, he got into matters of the spirit, and that's kind of the next logical step. You know, We're not the first religion to talk about mind, body, and spirit, hmm. um, but Hubbard studied the mind from kind of a methodical, scientific approach. And then he got into studying the spirit and started writing about the spirit and, you know, all those kind of things. And in the 19, early 1950s, some of the followers um, that were you know, people that were listening to his speeches and lectures and reading his books said, wait a minute, this is religious now. We're talking about the spirit. We're talking about what happens after you die, where people come from, all these kind of things. And some of the followers started a church. So that was how the Church of Scientology started in 1954. And today we're pretty much every country in the world. Um, we have a church. If not, we have smaller missions or groups or just individual Scientologists. I want to kind of get in the 
the details of what it means, what how the religion defines body, mind, and spirit. Sure, sure. Well, the body's pretty easy. Sure, you can <laughs> see that. You know, we're sitting in chairs. You can, you're, you're, you can see your body, and you can look over and see somebody else's body. Um, the mind, we, we distinguish the mind from the brain. So, people, I've I've had, I had an, a very interesting discussion one time with some friends talking about how, how uh, the brain, how you think with your you know, they thought that you think with your brain. And I said, you don't think with your brain, you think with your mind. And they're like, what's the difference? Mm-hmm. And well, the brain is a, it's part of the body. You can, you can hold a brain in your hand if you're a med student or something, right? Well, it's a very important part. Like the heart's a very important part, but separate from that is the mind. You think with your mind, your mind is a collection of pictures and experiences from your past. Um, it's what you use to think up, uh, to imagine things, to solve problems, and that's the mind. And then I say, so whose mind is it? Or a classic question I like to ask people is, uh, if you break your arm, you know, whose arm is broken? Right. Or look at your right hand, whose hand is that? And most people say, it's my hand. And then I say, well, who are you? You're not your hand, right? If you're not your hand, are you your arm? No, you're not your leg. It's your leg. You own the leg. Who are you? You're something different from the leg. You're something different from the body. You say, my body doesn't feel good. My body hurts. You know, I got to lay down. So who are you that owns this body? So you are a spiritual being. Mm. And that's that's a kind of a simple way that anybody can kind of grasp. Uh, you know, you might have to wrap your wits around it, but you'll at least understand what I'm talking about when I say that people are spiritual in nature. Um, I grew up in, a, in the Catholic faith, and we would pray about our souls, you know, pray about the souls going to heaven. And we, it was sort of like you had a soul, like I want my soul to go to heaven. And in Scientology, it's kind of flipped upside down. We, you are the soul. You are the spirit. You have a mind. You have a body. You have a car. You have a, a girlfriend. You know, you have whatever <laughs> you have, but, but you're a spiritual being. And that's, that's how we look at it. And actually, your first question, what is Scientology? It really, it's all about getting a greater understanding of what that means. What does it mean to be a spirit? How does that affect your life? How can you relate with others as a spiritual being? Is it very platonic in the sense that the real you is a spirit and sort of the bodily world, the material world corrupts us and we have to kind of get back in tune with that spiritual world? Is that fair? You know, that's actually pretty good. That's, that's, uh, we, we don't really talk about it in those terms, but <laughs> I would say that that's true. Right. And, you know, the more, I know other faiths kind of have that, that angle on it. Um, but we know how the, you know, you think, I say, I was saying how you think with your mind and the mind can get corrupted by your experiences and your pasts and pains in your, in your life and so forth. And so, you know, if you've got a headache, it's hard to do your math, you know, it's hard right. to, hard to concentrate. And in a similar way, people have headaches every day that don't even know they have a headache. And the, once you can kind of get past the, the history that is affecting you currently, you come to, you come to much more into present time, we would say. You, you are right here, right now, and you can look at life from wherever you're at. So there's, a, there's an element of presentness, being here, rather than lingering in the past. Is that definitely an element? Yeah, for sure. Okay. For sure. Like most of what we do, most of mankind is constantly affected by the past. You know, they're, they're still in mourning over the loss of a loved one that happened 20 years ago. Are they lost a job, you know, four years ago that really meant a lot and they haven't been able to work since. And, and that's what I would call living in the past. It, do, it doesn't have to be, uh, you know, uh, weird and esoteric. It's just like 
you're stuck. Your attention is on something that happened a long time ago. And I'm not saying you wouldn't feel sad about losing somebody in the past, but you don't have to live in that the rest of your life. You'll eventually get over it. Let's kind of get over it a little sooner. Is there an importance or a stress on being able to think rationally and being able to control your emotions in this religion? Um, well, not so much. I mean, it's important to think rationally, but you know, the more alive you become, the more your emotions become free. So, okay. Excuse me. I'm going to cough. Apologies. <coughs> hope you can edit. Oh, out. absolutely. I can edit anything out. All right. So you asked about the, um, emotions and, and it's not really important to control your emotions as such. Um, if there's something worth being mad at, get mad, you know, if there's, mm-hmm. Happy occasions, be happy, but I don't know if I answered the question, but no, yeah. yeah. The reason why I bring it up is I think we should probably start talking about the process of auditing. And to me, the process of auditing has always felt like, how do you kind of, you're, you're a rational being. It, that's how I always seen it. Like as a, you assume you're an irrational being and then you've become, you know, let's, let's use the word corrupted because I can't think of a better word by uh, all these past memories and you lingering in, and leaning into these deficiencies and believing false assumptions. And that's not allowing you to just be in the moment and think clearly. Right. Is right. that fair? <coughs> yeah, that's a good, and that's a good explanation or a good um, description of, of it. Let me tell your listeners what auditing is. So auditing is, you know, the word audio, it has to do with listening. An auditor is somebody who listens. And in Scientology, an auditor is, is uh, further than that. He's trained to ask certain questions. So I was talking about how you're kind of affected by your past. Well, the auditor asks you questions that are geared to get you to look at your past and to find what it is that is affecting you currently. Mm. So you're aware of all this stuff, but you're not thinking about it. It's sort of, you could say it's kind of unconscious or subconscious. So the auditor helps you look at that. And then once you see it and see the truth of it, and realize what it is, then it can't affect you anymore. It, it, it not affect you the same way. I mean, you're being you're being kind of driven by your past against your own knowledge. Once you know what's in your past and what happened back then that makes you nervous right now, or makes you hate public speaking, or you're bad at math, or you're um, have terrible time with relationships, whatever it is that's going on in your life, you can't seem to get a grip on. There's a reason for it, mm. and auditing helps you look back and discover your part in what that reason is. Sounds very Freudian in the sense that, as in Sigmund Freud, the psychoanalyst insofar as that there are unconscious motivations that are preventing us from being our best versions of ourselves, And you kind of have to go back and account for them. Yeah, well, Hubbard gave credit to Freud in the beginning of the book right. Dianetics. He, he had studied, Hubbard studied under a man who had studied directly under Freud. Oh, okay. And um, he found workability and he found workability in a lot of things. And Hubbard, Hubbard writes many times about how, you know, a lot of the stuff that he's laying out there for us to read already existed. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of truth in a lot of different subjects. You know, religion is full of truth. Um, there's truth in uh, psychotherapy. There's truth in a lot of different studies. Um, the accomplishment of Scientology is the way that he pulled things out that are workable, that anybody could sit down and read and study and move forward spiritually and move their advance their personal abilities so talk to me i'm assuming you've been on both sides of the auditing process as the auditor and someone who's being auditing audited. yeah i have yeah uh, maybe talk to me about that process the uh and then like the in relation to the m meter correct 
E-meter. E-meter. Yeah, Got it's it. it's uh, we have a tool in Scientology. It's really unique. Um, I don't know of anybody else that that has something like this. It's called an electropsychometer. And we just call it an e-meter for short. And what it does is it measures changes in the mind. It's actually a meter, just like you might hook a meter up to your car or something, and it would measure electrical resistance and so forth. So this meter is very sensitive and measures changes in the mind. When you, when you, um, before that sounds too far-fetched, think of, uh, think of a time when, you know, maybe you felt bad about something or you felt really morose or really guilty or, Something you know how your world kind of goes black. You kind of feel heavy or burdened, or uh, maybe you're under a lot of stress. Well, that's actually mental energy. There's actually something to that. It's not just your imagination, and this meter can measure that kind of thing. So it doesn't. I can't read your mind. I can't. I couldn't even tell if you're lying or telling the truth. Some people ask if it's a lie detector. It's not a lie detector, <laughs> but what it does is, if you're thinking about something that has some actual charge to it, some mental uh, energy charge, then the meter will help me find what that is. As an auditor, if I was auditing you, I would ask you a question. You would look back, look back over your past. Some of that charge would happen in your mind and that meter would react. And so there we would go. We would, I would maybe ask you what you're looking at. You know, what are you thinking about? What is that? And chances are you weren't even aware of it until I asked the question. Mm -hmm. So that's, as an auditor, that's what that's what I'm doing. Um, I'm helping you to look back, help, helping you to find the things that need to be addressed in your life. So it's very one-on-one. -on -one, it's very individualized. It's it's um, it's about it's all about you. Um, as the person the receiving the auditing, well, it's it's just you know you get the benefits of that. So if somebody's asking you, you're you're able to look back and sort out your life and sort out your you know your early beginnings and how you arrived at the person that you are. So in a similar, it's, is this session done in a one-on-one -on -one session where there's an e-meter sitting in the middle of the table where both yep. people can see and you're asking questions almost to see what makes that, that needle move upwards, right? Yeah, exactly. Is it a change? Is it going up or down or just looking for movement? Well, there's different movements, there's okay. different actions. And, and as you study and learn how to use the meter, you learn what you're looking for. Mm -hmm. But yeah, you're sitting across the table just kind of like we are right now. The auditor's looking at the dial on the meter. Um, you don't see it. Mm -hmm. It would just kind of be a distraction for you. You you want to, you don't want to have your attention on that. You just want to have your attention on your life and your history. And um, it's very uh, cooperative effort. It's the both of you are working on this together. It's you're totally aware of what's going on. You're not uh, you're not um, you're not unconscious or sleeping. You're you're not hypnotized. It's it's kind of the opposite of hypnosis. It's kind of waking you up. Hip sure. In hypnosis, that you're implanted with react, uh, you know, suggestions that you follow against your will. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what we're trying to dig up mm. in auditing. Right, These right. early suggestions, whether they were purposely put there or not. What are the sort of questions? Do you, do you engage in the process of auditing yourself regularly? No, usually don't. People don't audit themselves until they've had quite a lot of um, auditing and gone beyond the state of, uh, we call it clear. Mm -hmm. um, when you are receiving auditing, the first goal is to get, get to this condition called clear. And clear is somebody who has basically viewed the contents of their whole reactive mind and it can't affect them anymore. So uh, some of the questions 
Well, it varies. I mean, there's a whole series of, um, first you do, it's laid out in grades. It's called grades. First you do grade zero, grade one, grade two, grade three, and each one covers a different topic. So grade zero is all about communication. You know, you have to be able to communicate in order to discuss what's going on in your, in your own case. And after grade zero, then you go into grade one and that deals with problems. So it's asking about different problems that you've had in your life, problems that you still have today that you had a long time ago or, you know, whatever it covers problems up, up, down and sideways. And then it goes into, um, um, various hostilities and sufferings that you've experienced as we all do, uh, kind of weeds, weeds that out and helps you feel better about mistakes that you've made or that others have made regarding you and that kind of thing. And it just kind of goes on like that. One, two, three. And after, I don't know, it depends on how much you experience it after a few months or maybe a year, you'll, you'll get to the end and you'll be clear and, and feel really great. So is this based on the assumption that once you uncover those unconscious motivations and flaws and hindrances, once you become aware of them, they go away? Uh, yeah, they they can't affect you. Let's put it that way. So okay. they can't affect you the same way. Like, what's the thing that's affecting people right now are things that they're not aware of, that they're unconscious of. So if you learn why it is that you're, you know, why do you always bite your nails when you're supposed to give a speech, <laughs> you know, then you probably wouldn't have to do that anymore. Right. That's, that's kind of a that's a silly example, but it's, for some people that would be a big issue. You know, so yeah. maybe give me an. I mean as much as you can, an example, because I'm, I'm aware that they're, these are very private sessions, um, but with anonymity, an example of a process in which you were surprised by the result or you think is a good example of what this auditing process does for somebody? Hmm, let's see. Well, we've seen people that have come in with um, various aches and pains and, and uh, I'll tell you about a person who came in. He was, uh, he'd been in some kind of an accident years ago and his back was just in, always in pain. He always attributed it to that accident and he got some auditing and I wasn't the auditor, but, um, I, I saw him physically after the, after you know, he'd been in a few sessions, a few different times, but you could see him like standing. I'm making a motion with my hand for mm-hmm. the, of standing up, standing up, standing up to where, he came in all kind of hunched over, and then by the end, he was like physically standing straight. Um, may not sound like a big miracle to you, but if, if you're in that much pain and now you're not in that much pain, then you probably, you know, you're better off, you're happier. And he was certainly happier for that. So I don't know what he ran into in the sessions, um, probably something about his back or who knows, maybe the accident, maybe he had another accident. But by the end of the sessions, he was feeling pretty good. It's very interesting that um, we often forget how much the mind affects the body. I think yeah. it's very interesting that this process addresses that too. Yeah, it's true. And and sometimes we get confused with other other thoughts or philosophies. People will say, well, you don't believe in medicine, right? And no, that's not an issue with us. People, if somebody is sick or ill, go see a doctor. You know, we're right. not we're not medical people. Uh, you know, I can't put your arm in a cast or give you the right drugs. Um, but like you just said, the mind will cause, if you're ill, the mind can cause that illness to hang on a lot longer. If you have, um, if you break your leg playing football in, in high school and you're getting ready to go into college, well, are you going to 
carry that break, broken leg with you in your mind, even long after it's healed, that can happen. So, you know, the thing can be like physically fine, but you're still shy about it. You don't want to, you don't want to push it. You don't want to risk it. That's all mental. And, you know, it's a combination. You got to fix the mind, you fix the body and you're a lot better off. Yeah, Oliver Sacks in his great book, Awakenings, talks about when he's treating these patients who had um, a form of a psychosis, hypnosis. It was a very interesting uh, illness that they were all dealing with, the patients that he was dealing with. They could, some of them couldn't move. They were, some of them fell asleep for 20 years and woke up. Like they were dealing with strange, strange pathologies. And th- there's a fascinating line in the book where he, Sachs talks about how there were patients who didn't want to get better because they were very much contented with their position of being taken care of. There was one woman who was vehemently opposed to getting dopamine, which was the cure at that time for that illness. And so she got the highest amount of dopamine possible and she still wasn't cured Mm -hmm. because she didn't want to. That was a really weird realization because I think we attribute too much to sort of these external means by solving problems. We think the yep. bodily world is most real, but we right. kind of forget that there's other realities. Absolutely. The mental one is very much real. Yeah, absolutely. As a matter of fact, if somebody comes to us to try to improve their life or they're saying that, mm. and we find that they have a situation that it would make it a conflict of interest, we, we can't even, we don't even try. Mm-hmm. If, uh, example, somebody's living off of disability payments they're not going to get better in auditing because they depend on that disability. So you kind of have to look at life around you and what's happening in a person's world and, and factor it in. And you'll see doctors, um, medical doctors, after years of trying to help people and realizing, you know, I'm really actually good at this, but some people just don't recover. Right. And then they, they'll go on YouTube and try to, um, you know, educate the world about how to recover after having some losses with people who just won't recover. Right. So, yeah, there's part of that. that. That's mental. I mean, that's mental. What does it mean to be a pastor in the Church of Scientology? Uh, well, it's, it's, I'd say it's pretty similar to other churches. Um, I have a lot of friends who are clergy. I, I really like, uh, we're, we're all denominational. Mm-hmm. And so I work with a lot of denominations around town. Most of my, most of my friends are clergy or involved with the church. And I say, I, I think my role is pretty similar to theirs where um, I have, uh, it's, it's different in that I don't do the Sunday service. I have a, a chaplain that does Sunday service, but, but I, I work with the community. I do um, outreach things. I do a lot of interfaith work. Um, I help various nonprofits and um, you know, work with our government agencies, you know, work with the Office of Neighborhoods and work with the um, whatever office I can to try to help improve the community. So in our church, my role has me more out in the community, more interacting, answering people's questions, doing things like this here today, that kind of thing. Got you. What was your journey to Scientology then? Well, like I mentioned, I grew up Catholic, and the Catholic religion is very interesting. I don't know if you've ever studied it. But sure. It's um, There's a lot of uh, what I would call ritual and ceremony, and as a kid, I didn't understand that. I didn't like it. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't really get it. So after leaving college, um, I basically left religion. You know, I never just said I'm done with it, but I just kind of moved on with my life and never didn't go to church for a while. Um, and then in the eighties, I kept seeing ads on TV for this book that was, um, you know, what's the cause of stress page 276? What's the cause of relationships problems page three, 
you know, and it was an ad for Dianetics. And to be honest, I thought they had a lot of nerve to say that they had all the answers for all these things. One day I was at a mall and I saw this book Dianetics on a bookshelf in a, you know, like Barnes and Noble or someplace. And I thought, well, there's that book, you know, that they're always saying has all these answers. And I just bought the book. I thought, okay, they're full of it. I'm going to read this book and I'm just going to, I'm going to get it. You know, I'm I'm going to prove it wrong, basically. Um, Well, that didn't happen. I read the book and it was really fascinating, very interesting. Um, Dianetics, like like I mentioned, is all about the mind, how the mind works. And uh, I'd kind of been interested in that kind of thing. Not so much, but, you know, I'd had some interest in that. But when I read the book, it's like, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Kept reading. That makes sense. Oh, I get it. That makes sense. Everything made sense. And then I kind of threw it under the bed for a while and forgot about it. Um, always remembered that it was a great book. It made a lot of sense, but I was done. I'd read it, you know. <laughs> and then a few years later, um, I had met uh, my girlfriend, who's now my wife. But at the time, I'd met her, and we were talking about something came up on TV about how babies can be influenced before they are born. And this was a big deal, and they were scientists were talking about that on national, I think it's national public TV or something. And I told my girlfriend, I said, "That's old news. That was in Dianetics in 1950. You know, it's already known that babies can be influenced before they're born." Um, so I pulled the book out, read and the book. By the way, when you say that, are you saying like, um, I think what it's like listening to Mozart or what? What exactly is that? Um, well, that to? might that might be nice, but more like. Um, Dianetics doesn't really get into that. It's more about like painful experiences you know, oh, okay. when a baby's in the womb and the, the mother is, uh, you know, bending or squashed, or if she's hit, if somebody hits her, gotcha, or she gotcha. has an accident. That that really affects your mind. You you, you come out with um, with experiences in your mind already there that are going to cause trouble for you. So I'm telling my girlfriend that was already in Dianetics. We we both read the book. We had to get a second copy called the 800 number on the back, just like, you know, like I always hope everybody does, but people don't, but called the 800 number and they call me back and like, yeah, we have a place here in town. Why don't you come down and take a class, learn something about it? So I did that. That was here in Nashville in 1980. Oh, I think it was 89 or 90. It was 1990. Mm-hmm. And, um, got interested, took a class uh, tried some auditing, received some auditing, studied how to do some, you know, beginner type auditing. You can learn this. St- it's really, it's not hard. It's not hard. Once you understand the most basic parts of the mind, you can learn it in a weekend. Mm-hmm. So um, did some of that. And then a couple of years into it, I decided I wanted to work for the church and you know, did some kind of administrative stuff and then went a little bit further, became ordained and kind of rose up the ranks that way. I'm interested in what Sea Org is. Um, maybe okay. talk a little bit about that. Okay, sure. Well, this the Sea Organization, um, often called Sea Org by people who like to abbreviate, is um, it started in the '60s when. And by the way, this is not your usual um, introductory topic, but <laughs> I'm going to just tell you all about it. So, um, Hubbard did a lot of things in his life. He was a very adventurous person. He did a lot of expeditions. He did tours and and went to foreign places one of the things he got into was uh he was able to captain ships he could pilot ships um, he had his mariners permits or license was whatever he have he could he could run big ships on every ocean and he was in the navy for a while so he was into ships um fifth 1950 dianetics comes out he keeps researching gets into scientology 
And in the 60s, he takes a group of Scientologists on an excursion on a ship and trains them in Scientology and helps them, answers their questions. You know, it's, it's just like today's authors. They write a book and people follow them and ask questions. So he had these people on his ship. He trained them how to operate the ship, and that became a, literally a sea organization. Mm. So these people that worked closely with him and were trained by him and learned Scientology directly from Hubbard, um, he trusted them to keep the religion safe and keep it pure and to keep, you know, keep it from getting altered over the years. Um, you know, there's there's contention about the Bible being the Holy word. And, you know, do you take it literally or do you interpret it? A lot of my friends have that, you know, they'll have discussions about that. And I have to say, well, you know, it's not even in the original language. Mm. Like when I read the King James version, that's King James's version right. of the Bible. And it's, it's a great classic, but it's not the language Jesus spoke. Mm-hmm. Well, Hubbard wanted to make sure that Scientology remained pure and that it wasn't altered by, people who were either evil or malintentioned or just didn't get it or didn't understand something. So he entrusted these that trained with him to keep it pure. And that was the C organization. And so that evolved into today. The most dedicated Scientologists become, if they want to, they become a member of the C organization and they just, it's kind of like a management um, function or like a senior ecclesiastical authority. So, that's who um, that's who we look up to in, in Scientology. We we are very fortunate to have that organization, and they've helped to move the religion forward and to protect the religion when it's been fought over the years. And it's a very much <coughs> a monk-like lifestyle for the people who are in this organization. Correct? Well, perhaps in that they're you know they're very tight knit organization. They're very close with each other. They're they're uh, you know when I think of monks, I think of you know giving up worldly possessions and you know, living kind of a cloistered lifestyle. And um, these people are m- way more adventurous and, okay. you know, f- like very, very high, high toned, enthusiastic. You, you like being around them. They're really very cool people. And um, just, you know, they're, they're making sure that we can all have Scientology for the long run. Oh God. Describe to me a beautiful moment you experienced while in Scientology. Well, you know, there's there's a lot that goes on in the auditing sessions that's really cool. But for me, in my day-to-day role, um, it has a lot more to do with uh, kind of interfacing with society. And one year we had um, a celebration for Martin Luther King Day. Uh, we did a Sunday service for Martin Luther King Day at the church. And we didn't just do it with us. We invited, um, we invited Baptists, and we had Mormons over, and we had uh, even some Church of Christ folks kind of stepped out and um, dared to step in. And and we just had so much fun that day. And people were, you know, really living the spirit of what Dr. King wanted. You know, the beloved community. And we sang songs. We sang Christian songs. I mean, we don't have a lot of Scientology songs. <laughs> if we did, nobody would know what they were except us. <laughs> But, you know, we sang, sang, sang together and there were performances and some preaching all around. And, and it was just really very, very uplifting to have all these different people come together um, in one space and, and uh, 
I wouldn't necessarily say we worship together because we all think differently about that, but we certainly all respected Dr. King and came together around that cause, and that, that was a pretty beautiful thing. Why is there a degree of secrecy from the rest of the world that Scientology likes to hold on to? Man, let me tell you, I would love to get over that because we take pains to tell everybody about it. You know, mm-hmm. we want we want people to come in. We want them to stop in. I don't even care, honestly. I don't care if somebody comes in, looks around, and says it's not for me and leaves. I want people to look for themselves. I want them to, you know, watch our TV st- TV station for a couple hours and to see what kind of stuff we're putting out there. Um, if there's any there's there's prob- possibly two points that would answer your question a little bit more directly. Um, one is that, like with any organization, any religion, there's terminology involved. And, you know, if you go to the doctor, he's got a lot of terminology. And the layperson, like myself, kind of feels a little bit left out yeah. until he comes and kind of breaks it down for me, right? Like talking to a third grader. But otherwise, I don't feel like I'm kind of in that click or in that in that group and we have that too we have our own technology of of healing the mind healing the soul and there comes a lot of terminology that goes with that so i think sometimes people might be a little bit overwhelmed by the terminology and feel like it's secret or confidential Um, but then we also do have some um, auditing that is confidential right and so People kind of get a little hung up or worried about that. You know, every time there's a secret, that will attract attention. You know, the, uh, people want to find out what that secret is, whether it's the Masons or the, you know, whoever has a secret, people want to know what it is. So there's a little bit of that too. Um, most Scientologists don't really get too hung up in that because, you know, it's all available. You just kind of, you follow the steps and all those secrets are revealed. But, um, I don't know if I'm answering the question or just yeah. rambling on, but no, absolutely. Yeah. So it sounds like is it is it true that maybe your philosophy of Scientology is more open than other Scientologists across the country? Mm, I don't think so. Um, okay, you know we've, like I said, we've taken so many pains to let people come and look mm-hmm. I mean, from from the TV studios to the promotional campaigns. I mean, we advertise on the Super Bowl and and everything you can think of. You know, we've probably tried it or done it or mm-hmm. social media or whatever, trying to reach out and saying, here, take a look. And, you know, we're just in, it's just a competition. Everybody's in a competition for people's thoughts and minds these days. And you just have to acknowledge that and say, you know, here's some ham. Are you hungry? Here's some ham. Here's some spiritual technology. Would you like to learn about your own self and your own mind? And some people will, will take you up on it and some people won't. And some people will hear about it now and come back in 10 years. We've had people that you know, read a book in the eighties and they finally decide they're going to step foot inside. And so right. there you go. One of the biggest impediments I would say to joining is the cost and the fees. Why are they so high? And I, I kind of understand L. Ron Hubbard's explanation for this, but I want to maybe hear what you have to add. Well, what, what do you, th- what do you think it costs? Um, to do one session or about, I think it's 50 hours of a uh, auditing session. It's about $4,000. Um, for 50 hours, it would be a lot more than that. Okay. But let me, let me tell you how it works. We don't, I got involved in Scientology in my 20s. I didn't have any money. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a musician, just playing, playing, having a great time, read the book, didn't have any money. I've done fine ever since. I've uh, 
been able to progress and learn and so forth. Uh, Scientology, knowledge is free. Knowledge is, wisdom is free for the taking, right? What we have to charge for is we have to charge for the books. You have to charge for the materials it's printed on. Um, just like if you go to Vanderbilt for a divinity degree, what are you going to pay? Right. $30,000, $40,000, $50,000. Know, by the time you're done, maybe $100,000 or something to get a degree. Well, you're not paying for the knowledge. You're paying for the professors. You're paying for the facilities. You're paying for the food. You're paying for... And that's, that's what it is with us, too. Our auditors are very highly trained. Um, you can come in... You can come in for free and attend Sunday service, and there's often there's a, a group auditing session in Sunday service. You can come in and get introductory sessions for free. You can find somebody who is learning how to audit and become their, you know, get an auditing session from that person for free. Just like, uh, you know, you go over to where they teach haircuts and you can get a free haircut from the stu- student barbers. Right. Well, you can get free sessions from our student auditors and they're supervised by somebody who knows what they're doing. So, you know, they come out good. Um, but yeah, if you want to go for some more advanced stuff or you want somebody who's spent, you know, years in training, you're going to pay for their time and you're going to pay for, it takes maybe four or five people to get you through all the different grades I was talking about. So, um, I don't know. Expensive is relative. What's Expensive for some is cheap for others. Um, I think it's just a matter of what it what is it worth to you. Gotcha. In many large religions like Christianity, Islam, and Hinduism, it can become der- uh, corrupt at different times and places. Do you worry about the same thing happening to Scientology as it becomes larger and larger? Um, I don't worry about it. I acknowledge that that can happen, and you know, ultimately, the the religion itself. It's just the religion, um, and it's the same with any faith or same with any organization or government. You know, people people become corrupt. You'll have, sure. you know, we have 100 people trying to make it go, and somebody's in there, you know, uh, you know, stealing from the cash register, you know. So that's that can happen anywhere, and we're not immune to that. You know, just like every other faith, we recruit humans, and humans are, are fallible creatures, and so that could happen, but fortunately we have a lot of skill in recognizing, you know, where somebody's at as a person, um, you know, recognizing, uh, what, how a person can manifest, uh, evidence that he's up to something or, you know, doing something and, you know, we can spot them and we can get rid of those people as we need to. Um, it's happened before and I'm sure we'll be, I'm sure, I'm sure it'll happen again, but just like any anybody, you just have to keep going. You know. How do you distance yourself as a local cr- a church and as someone from someone in the church of Scientology from bad actors who might be part of the religion have done negative things as a part of the religion? As this is a yeah. problem that almost anyone in any religion has to deal with, unfortunately. As a Muslim, you have to deal with separating yourself from yeah, extremist yeah. groups. As a Christian, you have to separate yourself from radical white nationalists, et cetera. Yeah, and that's a good question. And and I've seen that too. I've I actually feel, you know who's really hard on themselves more than anybody is the Christians that mm-hmm. I know. They they're always concerned about, you know, we're being we're being too overbearing or, you know, I that kind of thing. But but you kinda answered it in your question. There's there's the bad actors and then there's the people. You know, it's like we're not that bad actor. Mm-hmm. So if somebody, 
if somebody is causing us trouble internally to such a degree that they're trying to harm us, we will uh, part ways with that person. Um, beyond that, you know, we wish them well and they can go out in the world and, you know, find some other, find some other way to, to make their way through. Um, I don't know what else anybody could do. It's the same thing, like you said, for the Muslim community or anybody else. It's like, you just have to, I, I, I think you have to educate the general population about who you are and what you stand for and realize that they're still going to make up their own mind. And, you know, they probably still associate you with whoever said he was you. And, and that's just, you know, it's just kind of a fact of life, but you, you just have to keep going. So I taught religion uh, over the summer at my old high school and the professor who I worked with, uh, Dr. Laporte, he, he has a very interesting phrase, which is that cults are just religions that people don't like. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I do think that smaller religions are more, more prone to be called cults because when you're a larger religion, you have the benefit of having diversity. But if you're a smaller religion, like let's say Mormonism, you mess up it once or twice and it's ruined because there's only a few people in there and it's tagged yep. as the identity of the group. Yep. Do you think that's something Scientology deals with and is a problem? I, th I think we have to just because of our newness and size and uh, cults are religions people don't like, but they're also religions that are new. Mm. And, you know, in the beginning, the, the people that followed Christianity were just the Jesus cult. I mean, right. the Jesus followed. I don't mean that derogatorily, right. but that's just the way they were viewed back then. Or the Romans, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so so here we are. We're you know seventy years old. We're like the babies on the block, and um, we're going to have that stigma with us for a while. Now, I I will say it's interesting that you know I've been around since nineteen ninety, and even in just my short span thirty plus years, I've seen it change a lot. Where in the nineties it was pretty, we were attacked as a cult a lot more than we are now. Now, if people don't like us. They just don't like us or they, you know, they try to, you know, say whatever they say, but they don't always go on that cult angle. So um, not as much. And I don't know if that could be quantified, but just anecdotally, it's been my experience that I hear that term less and less. And I don't know what to think of it. It's just interesting. Right. Um, I think we can both agree that that's perhaps an unnecessary. I think it's, I, I think it's very interesting how we play with words. Yeah. And I think the word cult has been exploded to mean many things, which isn't helpful. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, there's a lot of critics of Scientology. And some of the critics, uh, critiques of it are not necessarily of the doctrine. Those who kind of critique the doctrine, I think, are being silly. But those who critique the organization and some of the people who have been in it and engage in some uh, shady activities, that's been a deterrent for people in the 90s especially, after Operation Snow White. How do you think Scientology grows past some of these um, scandals that Scientology had in the past and grows as a community and becomes a religion that people see legitimately, not as a cult? Well, the, the biggest thing that we try to do is just, like I said, we just keep putting it there and showing people who we are and what we do and what we believe. And, mm -hmm. and um, you know, the, the bottom line is, like you said, people don't really attack the religion. It's really hard to attack the religion. It's like... There's nothing there to attack. It's it's like, you know, I hate math or I you know, <laughs> I, I hate philosophy. You know, yeah. Well, what is that? Doesn't even mean anything. So they pick out a person or they pick out something, and the people that are attacking us the hardest are the people that were involved and for whatever reason left, got kicked out, whatever 
whatever their situation was. And, um, you know, they have their agenda and they have their freedom of speech and you know, they can do what they think is important, but we're just going to keep going and we'll be here long after they're gone. Yeah, I, I find the doctrine of Scientology not only interesting, but maybe even admirable in many times. I mean, I'm very interested in it. I worry about some of the churches and some of the way they've treated people who've left the church in a way that seems suspicious to me. That is my only concern. So move, and this has happened in the Catholic Church, of course. We, we know of the scandals. We've known the scandals with the Islamic tradition. We know of the scandals of the Buddhists and the Hindus. And so for me, when there's a church that isn't doing something to improve themselves and recognize their failures, that doesn't help the religion, especially at the scale that Scientology is. Yeah. So that's the concern for me with Scientology. Well, I, we just try to keep going and keep moving in a positive direction. And uh, whatever, you know, if people have had a beef with us in the past, we're always willing to communicate with them and try to solve that. So I don't know what else to say about that. What is the most important thing you've learned from Scientology? It can only be one thing. One thing? Okay, yeah. let's see. I think the I think I would say off the top of my head here without a lot of thought snap answer would be um, that your integrity to yourself is extremely important. Interesting. You're you're be willing to know what you observe and say what you observe and stand by it and be willing to change as well. You mean you don't have to be hard headed, but you know, if I see if I see something and I think that's wrong, then I should say it's wrong. And if I somebody shows me how it's not, then I should accept that and keep going. But, but the, uh, your personal integrity is, is really important. Once you've lost that, you've sort of lost out. That's interesting. Being truth. Uh, what was the exact phrase you said? Having integrity with yourself. Yeah, yeah. It's very similar to the sort of process of auditing because oftentimes we have unconscious motivations because we're repressing things about ourselves that we don't like to be honest, to recognize them is to integrate those qualities into our being and say, it's okay if I have this. And if it comes up, I know where it's coming from, mm -hmm. but it's not something I need to make it disappear. Right. 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 So that's right. interesting. Would you say that's related to that or is that something else? Well, I think as you get audited and you find out the, uh, you know, the subconscious reasons that you behave like you do and you get rid of that compulsions or those obsessions, you become more and more true to yourself because mm -hmm. those things are not really you. You know, if you're, if you're living your life driven by some compulsive action, that's not you. Mm -hmm. That's just a compulsive action. So right. the more, the more you, you become, the easier I think it is to maintain your integrity. What would you like your legacy to be once you're gone? My personal legacy? Yes. I would like for people to think that, they were happy that I lived, and um, that somehow I helped them out. What is the meaning of life to you? Mm. You know, life is a game, and the um, the better you get it in learning how it works, the better you can play it, the more people you can help. So what is the meaning of life? I don't have the answer to that, but for me, it's just try to help people and try to make the world a little bit better place. Got you. If I were to join, this is interesting because I, I, if there's a lot of, let's say, um, because a lot of churches are now going into the open stage of Scientology, kind of where people are interested in how do I join it. So if I were to join Scientology today, what would I have to do? 
Um, well, it's kind of a funny question because people don't come in and join. Interesting. Um, we don't have a conversion process. You don't have to leave your faith or commit to anything. So mm-hmm. usually what happens is people would read a book. Okay. Maybe they'd read a few. Maybe they'd come and take a class, you know, take an introductory type class, um, just um, come to some events. And maybe after a year or two or three, they'll think to themselves, hey, I'm a Scientologist. <laughs> you know, And that's perfectly fine with us. That's yeah. It's kind of an organic personal growth thing. Some people t- come and take classes for a while and, you know, we never see them again. And that's, that's fine, too. Um, maybe they'll be back. Hopefully they got something out of it. So there's no... There's no process to join. There's no application you fill out. There's no fee you pay. You just you just show up and you find in yourself, I'm using Scientology to improve my life. And that's the definition of a Scientologist, is somebody who uses the faith to to make things better. Uh, how, if you were to kind of come up with a mental experiment in which in one life, you see yourself not having taken Scientology. In another, which is the one you're currently living, you are in Scientology. What would be the differences if you could kind of wow. map it out between those oh, two people? That is the coolest question I've ever been asked. <laughs> okay, I'm glad. <laughs> so, okay, so the difference is in the one, on the one hand, I'm trying to make things go and I'm struggling and I'm, you know, running into personal failures. And then I'm getting up again and trying to keep things going. And then I run into, uh, then I start drinking and, (laughs) you know, trying to solve problems that way. And then I'm getting older and, you know, getting, just having a rough time, but still always trying to make things go. And it's on the other hand, the other life where I'm in Scientology, I'm trying to make things go. I'm trying to make things right. I'm struggling, but I got a little bit of a, a help. I got a little bit of an edge and that's, that's kind of the difference I see. I have a little bit of an edge. You know, I have um, I have some knowledge about communication, for example, how that works, why it's important, and how to better communicate with others. And I don't proclaim to be, you know, God's gift to communication, but I can get along. Whereas in that first life I described, you know, maybe I fight and argue more. Mm. And so I feel like I got a leg up. I feel like I have a little bit of an advantage. Gotcha. In today's world, we're seeing a lot of conflicts between different religions, groups of people, political identities. What is something you would say, maybe something you've learned from Scientology, that you'd say that would help us resolve some of these conflicts? Well, that that is a good follow-up because communication is really the only answer. You know, we have to uh, we have to get in touch with each other. We have to find um, I won't even say common ground. We just have to realize that. You know, it's okay for you to walk on your ground and I can walk on my ground and we can maybe walk in each other's yard every now and then. <laughs> but, it, you know, people are just people. I have uh, my neighbors on on the right side, um, they're Korean. On the left side, they're Hispanic. Uh, across the street, they're white. Right down here, they're black. We all we all share the same street. You know, it's 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 not complicated to live together. But, but I think we where we lose touch, where we get into trouble is when we are suspicious of each other's intentions. Mm. And when we can sort that out, you know, if I think you're up to something or you think I'm, you know, on some agenda, that's where we have trouble. So that's where communication comes in. It's like, hey, what are, what are you up to? What are you, ta- what are you thinking? What, how should we approach this? Oh, I, I don't really think we should approach it that way. Here's how I think, and we can kind of talk it out. But we start worrying about the intentions, and then it turns into 
yelling and then it turns into arguing and then it turns into fighting and it turns into bombs and then we're all sunk. That's very keen. I, I mean, that's very true too. I mean, just to say that being suspicious of motivations, yeah. we start to just pick up a certain vibe or just see a certain glance. Or like, yeah. Is this, what do you mean by that? And we manifest it. We start to act as though they are having bad intentions. That's right. That's right. It's like we repeat a certain thought and it becomes a habit and then it becomes the person Right. I saw this person look at me some one way. You think about it over and over and over again, and it becomes reality. Exactly. And then you exactly. act that way. That's Talk right. about mental reality. That is the most yep. real thing in that situation. Yep. Mm. And and uh, not to get political, and I'm not going to get political, but whatever side you're on, if you see the wrong color shirt on this person, you're going to have a set of views about what that person's like. Right. And, and they might be totally wrong. They might be the nicest person, whether that shirt's red or blue but you're going to ascribe to them the views that you think go with that person. And if you get in touch with that person and talk to them, you'll probably find that we agree on most of the important stuff. Right. And it's the, it's the small stuff that it's small. It can be worked out. Right. But when you're just kind of stewing about where is he coming from or what's he up to or what's he trying to do to me, um, that opens the door to a lot of trouble. Right. Uh, there's uh, this idea of the charity principle, which is that assuming that no matter what you're dealing with, even when it seems like someone's being slightly suspicious or manipulative, you assume that they meant good and they just came off a certain way. And that's a, that's an Love idea it. that's helped me a lot um, because I, I really believe in this idea of manifesting a thought. So if you, if you truly believe and give the person the benefit of the doubt, you act a certain way towards them, they will reciprocate it nine yeah, times out of 10. I think so. Nobody wants to be a jerk to the guy who's being nice right. to them. The so. golden rule, you know, treat people like you want to be treated. And uh, I think I think what you said is really important and I want to lift it up because if you assume that the people are doing good and they're trying to survive and they're trying, you know, they've got their family, their life, whatever decisions they're making, they're trying to do something right. And take it from that angle, it's a it's a much easier to get into communication with that person and to to learn from that person and to you know you feel a lot safer because you can be in touch. Right. And but when you assume, I mean, why do you have to assume anything? Why do you have to assume they're coming at you from a bad angle <laughs> or a good angle? Mm-hmm. If you're going to assume something, just assume it's good and then find right. out. <laughs> right, know? right. I think people are basically good. I think uh, you know that's one thing in Dianetics and Scientology we talk about people are basically good. Mm. And, you know, I grew up Catholic. We're all sinners from the, from birth, you know, <laughs> right. but in Scientology, we're, we consider that people are good. And of course we sin, of course we do wrong, but the proof that you're basically good is how bad you feel when you do something wrong, mm. you know, that you wear it and you wear it on your conscience. And, and uh, so I think people are basically good. And even if they're making mistakes, I think they're trying. Um, I think there are some people that are probably pretty evil and ought to be locked up, but that's mm-hmm. a, such a small minority, you know. Right, right. No, that's interesting, the, this idea that you know that people are in, intuitively or naturally innately good because they feel wrong when they do something. It's, it's in philosophy, call it deontology, this idea that if you're doing bad, you're not feeling bad about it, just dust off your conscience, kind of get back to yourself, figure out who you are, like feel it. Like really, there's something about feeling it. Mm-hmm. getting your intuition back in order, then go out in the world and see how you feel when you cheat on that test, for example. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's, it's, it's really true to me. It's much more different than how I had categorized Scientology prior to this interview, which I, I've always thought about it as something about 
thinking rationally, but it seems like it's thinking clearly and feeling rightly, something like that. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah that's good. Well, thank you, Reverend Fessler, so much for this interview. Yeah. Um, thank you for working with me to do this. I learned a lot about something I knew very little about, so I appreciate you for that. Well, thank you, and thank you for doing this whole series. And uh, you said you taught religion. I didn't know that, but that's that's really important. People need to learn about their own faith, but they also need to learn about other faiths. Very true. And uh, the more I find, the more I learn about other faiths, it doesn't water down my own beliefs. It, it, it adds to it, mm-hmm. and I feel more in touch with people, so... Thank you. Thank you. All right. Thank you all for joining me this week. Please tune again next week in my conversation with Katie Parham, which will be an interesting conversation about indigenous right activism and politics on campus and in the greater Nashville area. With that being said, y'all take care. <laughs>